When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Yet many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your, sons, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Please pray with me. It's astonishing. A familiar passage, and yet it's astonishing again to consider the incredible power that you have, God. Lord, we're, we're very prone to think of, of, of our life in light of just our own physical power, our own efforts, our own abilities. Lord, we're so reliant upon technology. We're very... Um, we're very used to just, just to normal... Life that we, we don't realize. We often forget the power of your word. We forget the power of your son. Lord, it's easy to relegate our understanding to simply stories that we read about in the Bible or doctrines that we ascribe to. And I pray that you would work to, to bring us more than just better understanding, but confidence in your power, confidence in your authority, that we might live as confident Christians who walk uprightly and confidently knowing that you are for us and that you are, if you are for us, who can be against us? And Lord, I specifically pray that you would give us understanding into your word. And help me personally to make your word clear. So that all of us, after leaving our worship service this afternoon, might have full hearts, full of worship for you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. It was actually 
almost exactly 500 years ago today. That Martin Luther penned these words that are actually a description of the most terrifying time in his life. The most terrifying moments that he ever experienced. And he writes about them in the third person, reminiscent of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes, I myself knew a man who claimed that he had suffered these punishments. And in fact, over a very brief period of time, yet they were so great and so much like hell that no tongue could adequately express them. No pen could describe them. And one who had not himself experienced them could not believe them. And so great were they that if they had been sustained or had lasted for half an hour, even for one tenth of an hour, he would have perished completely and all of his bones would have been reduced to ashes. At such a time, God seemed so terribly angry and with him the whole creation. And at such a time, there is no flight, no comfort within or without, but all things accuse. In this moment, it is strange to say, the soul cannot believe that it can ever be redeemed. And catch that, the greatest terror that Martin Luther ever experienced, the great reformer who based the whole world was out to get, he was the most wanted man by the most powerful kingdom, institution, the Roman church of that day. And the most terrifying thing he ever experienced was the belief that God would not forgive him for his sins. He says it was so terrifying he couldn't even describe it with words. And this is also why he said, looking back on his life, he said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. How can a sinner find forgiveness? That is, that is the question posed to us in the text before us. Or at least the answer is given to us. And here we, we see a paralyzed man who's brought to Jesus and he leaves Jesus with the absolute assurance that all of his sins have been forgiven him. But what's particularly remarkable about this story is not just what happens to this man, the miracle that takes place. What's even more remarkable is why. And so, as we look at this passage, I want you to be thinking to yourself, why is it that these things take place? Let's look, first of all, at the paralytic coming to Jesus. The paralytic comes to Jesus. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And now we recall that in the, the very last section we read in, in chapter 1, Jesus had healed a leper. And the re result was this leper went and he proclaimed what had happened to him 
this healing throughout all of Capernaum. And, and, and crowds came to the extent that Jesus was really forced back into the wilderness. And he stayed in the wilderness for some time, going from village to village out there and speaking the word of God. But he was not yet finished with Capernaum. And so we see in verse 1 that now he has returned home. So what this tells us is that Jesus has now made Capernaum his home. This is where Jesus is living. And a lot of scholars think that most likely he was living with Simon Peter. That was the house, of course, that he had visited in chapter 1. Regardless of the owner, however... The point is that Jesus had come home, and after coming home, he immediately sets about his work of teaching. So in the beginning of this passage, we have Jesus teaching to the people, and crowds are coming. So much so that there isn't any room. So many people had gathered that not only was the house filled, but there actually wasn't even any room in the doorway, it said. So... Picture a porch. There wasn't even any room on the porch of the house. Tons of people had come to hear what Jesus had to say. And then one of those people is a paralytic, and he's carried by four men. Now, it's, it's interesting that Mark notes he was, he was carried by four men. Anytime Mark notes particular details... They, they capture our attention. And it's almost like as, as if reading a treasure map, there's a sign that says, dig here. When you see a detail of Mark that he goes out of his way to highlight, it's worth spending time to examine why. Well, when was the last time four men were mentioned in the Gospel of Mark? The two sets of brothers. Simon and Andrew and James and John. They're the two sets of brothers that were mentioned at the house of Peter's mother-in-law. And they afterwards were called, or previously had been called to become fishers of men. And it seems very likely that Jesus came back to the same house that he was at before. And if it was Peter's house, it would make sense that if these were the four men that were mentioned before, it would make sense why they had the audacity to dig through the roof. If Peter was one of them, he might have been the one that gave the okay to tear up his roof in order to get them, the man down. So although there are some clues as to who these men are, the reality is we, we can't be certain because the text doesn't say. What we can be certain of, however, is their desperation. These men are intent to bring their friend to Jesus. And since they couldn't get him through the door, they ascended with the staircase that would have been outside. The house of these time in Palestine would have had stone staircases on the outside of the house adjacent to it. And they must have climbed up the outside of the house and gone up on top of the flat roof that was there. And the roofs of Palestinian homes were made of a, of a few large beams that went atop the, across the top. And then there would have been sticks and various kinds of thatch in between mixed with mud. And then they would have had a, a clay covering. And so they had a clay roof, which is why they were able to dig through it. It was literally made of dirt. 
They were able to physically tear off the roof. Literally, it says they, they unroofed the roof. Now, we have to ask the question, why is it that they're so desperate to get this man to Jesus? I mean, why right now? It's possible they could have just waited till he was done. Why now? Why are they so desperate? Well, you might think, well, that's obvious. He was paralyzed. And Jesus has already proven that he has the power to heal all sorts of maladies. He's already done that in Capernaum. So they're bringing to him to be healed. Well, that certainly might be the case. And I think if we were to put ourselves in this man's shoes, if we were paralyzed, if we couldn't walk, we too would be eager to want to come to Jesus to be healed. That's why we would come to him. But what if healing isn't actually this man's priority? What if, in light of the brokenness that he's physically experienced in his life, he has come to realize that his greatest need is not just walking, but he has an even greater need. And I believe the text actually suggests that this man and his friends were actually, they, they were desperate to get him to Jesus so that they could hear him talk. They could hear him teach. I don't think the priority here is actually healing, but teaching. Well, why? Why do I say that? Well, notice that this is the, that at the time when Jesus is in the house, he's not healing. He, what's he doing? He's teaching the word of God. In fact, the only healing that he does perform at this time is on this man. And he only does that in order to prove a point to the scribes that are there. To prove a point to them. Secondly, note the obvious contrast of this story with the preceding. The story of the leper. There you had a man who was absolutely confident that Jesus could heal him. So he comes to Jesus and gets the healing. And yet, that man had no interest in what Christ had to say. He was blatantly disobedient to Jesus' words. He wasn't interested in hearing what Jesus had to say. He just wanted the healing. And the opposite seems to be the case here. The paralytic comes to hear Jesus speak and then gets blessed with healing on account of Jesus wanting to make a point. And in fact, there is no indication, thirdly, that the man asked to be healed. Nor do, nor do his friends ask him to be healed. All they do is bring him to Jesus. And in fact, the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is not, I'm going to heal you. Which is remarkable. And it appears that he would have been content not to be healed at all. And just to, to listen to what Jesus had to say. Fourthly, coming to Jesus simply to want to hear God's word is reflective of the nature of saving faith. When a person has saving faith, they've recognized that they need God's word more than their necessary food. And notice verse 5, the presence of this man's faith. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
So their faith, that the, the, the plural adjective there, refers to the four men and the paralytic. But what does it mean that Jesus sees their faith? Well, in the outset, it might, it might appear that what he sees is, this, is the demonstration of the four friends and their desperation to bring this man to Jesus. He sees their actions. Jesus could see how seriously they believed he could help them. What's possible? But if this is referring just to seeing the earnest actions of these men, demonstrating Jesus' confidence that Jesus has the power to heal, how is this any different than the previous story where the leper had the same confidence? See, Jesus sees something in these men that he didn't see in the leper. Because it wasn't there in the leper. He sees something beyond these men's actions. And it's remarkable that Mark in the following verses actually goes out of his way to demonstrate that Jesus doesn't just observe actions. He can see into people's hearts. Right? Notice verse 8. Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. I mean, he could see what's going on in people's hearts. He, he's looking into them. And so it's noteworthy that Jesus forgives this man on account of the faith that he sees. Again, it's in stark contrast to the previous story. Unlike the previous story where the leper came to Jesus, got healed, and then was disobedient, this man is actually obedient. Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk home and that's what the man does and throughout scripture genuine faith is always demonstrated in obedience it's always demonstrated in obedience speaking of abraham in romans 4 paul writes this in fact turn in your bibles to romans 4 see this yourself as paul explains what saving faith looks like he says this in romans 4 20 describing abraham Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. He was fully confident that what God said would happen. This is speaking of the promise that even as an Ancient man, we could call him. He was over 100 years old. He could still have children. That God would somehow bring about a child. Abraham's righteousness, we see, was based on his faith in what God said. And likewise, as Jesus looks into the hearts of these men, and in particular the paralytic, he sees their faith. And he knows that they're believers and that's why he can say with absolute assurance to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. Because he sees their faith. So in summary, the question I was asking was why, why was it that this man came to Jesus? And the points that I made was Jesus wasn't healing. He was teaching. There's no indication that the man asked or even expected to be healed. And then you consider the, also that this is an, 
contrasts with the previous story in multiple ways. And that the nature of saving faith is to be drawn to God's word. When you put all of these factors together, it seems that the reason the paralytic comes to Jesus isn't actually to be healed, or at least not primarily, but rather it's because he wants to hear God's word. He knows that Jesus has the words of eternal life. He came not to be healed, but he came to hear. This man's desperation and the, his friend's desperation demonstrates a remarkable truth. I mean, he, this is a paralytic. And he's not going to let anything get between him and God's word. I mean, like some of you here today, I think of, immediately off the top of my head, I think of David. Right after he had surgery, the next Sunday, David's here in church i got to hear God's word. James did the same thing with his surgery. Many of you know what that's like. You, you recognize you love the word of God. It is my necessary food. Man, you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You've experienced 1 Peter 1.23. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And you know that it's by hearing God's word that you grow. And likewise, this man came to hear. And it's in hearing the word of God that he gets the assurance that his sins are forgiven. In fact, that's how all men are saved. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People hear God's word. And in hearing, they believe. And in believing, they are saved from their sins. And it's through searching the scriptures that Martin Luther finally found the freedom of the forgiveness that he so much longed for. He writes this. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. He goes on. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. Speaking of the book of Romans. Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He wanted forgiveness. He wanted to know how he could be made right with God. And where did he go? He goes to the word and he pounded upon it, he said, to try and understand how might a man have his sins forgiven? And he says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Therefore, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. In in discovering this, he finally says, here I felt that I was altogether born again. 
and it entered paradise itself through open gates. Martin Luther, in reading the book of Romans, in discovering that the just shall live by faith and be saved by faith, finally had the confidence that all of his sins were forgiven. And like the paralytic, he recognized that forgiveness is obtained by faith. And that's what we see in verse 6 or in verse 5. But look at verse 6. Some of the scribes, it says, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And really, here we come to the central point of the passage. This question that's asked. And the question that the scribes are pondering in their hearts is the right question. In fact, it literally says that they held a dialogue within themselves. And the, and the conclusion that they come to after their inward dialogue is spot on. All of their scribal training was paying off. They come to the right conclusion. No one can forgive sins but God. The problem is, they veer left when they should veer right here. The conclusion they're supposed to make is that this man is God. And instead they go to the opposite direction and conclude that he's blaspheming. It reminds, it reminds one of the, the, the famous statement made by, made by C.S. Lewis. That either Jesus Christ was a liar or he was a lunatic or he's Lord. One of those three things. So Jesus is either extremely arrogant thinking he can forgive sins willy-nilly, but just a man. Or he's crazy. He thinks he can forgive sins, but he's out of his mind. Or this man's God. See, Jesus forces the logic of the scribes into a corner. Either he is God in the flesh, or he has got serious mental illnesses. Sorry, mental issues. He's crazy. Or he's just incredibly arrogant. And you see here, Jesus in his mercy wants to let it, wants them to know. He wants them to realize. He knows what they're thinking. He wants to give them every reason to believe that he is who he says he is. And he helps them in two ways. First, he demonstrates his power, his divine power, by reading their thoughts. He looks them dead in the eye and asks, why is it that you're reasoning this way in your hearts? Now, if somebody comes to you and is able to articulate exactly what you're thinking, you should listen to them. It's a supernatural power. In fact, the only person who knows a person's heart truly is the Lord. Psalm 139, 1 through 2. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. God knows everything that we're thinking. Psalm 94, 11, The Lord knows the thoughts of man. So Jesus is helping them reason. 
I know what you're thinking. But he goes one step further. And then he offers them inex, inex, um, absolute, can't find the right word, gives them absolute proof that he is God. He asks them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Right after he says it, paralytic gets up. And he picks up his mat and he goes home. He obeys Christ, but even more so, Christ demonstrates He has not just the authority to forgive sins. He demonstrates he has the power to heal a man. Immediately. In order to demonstrate the greater power that he can can forgive sins. See, Jesus does this again for the benefit of the scribes. He wants them to clearly see he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He wants them to clearly see he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the son of man that was prophesied by Daniel in Daniel 7:13, whom Daniel foretold would come and rule over all the nations of the world. This is him. And Jesus' pronouncement about his authority is really just as amazing as the miracle itself. See, not only does he claim to be the prophesied son of man, he claims that he personally has the authority to forgive sins. And consider this. What he's saying is he's not merely a messenger. He's not merely an ambassador. He's not merely passing some truth along. He's the person that decides if sins are forgiven. He has the authority. I mean, what Jesus says there is astonishing. I mean, imagine going into Home Depot in order to buy your spouse a a lawnmower, let's say, for Christmas. And you tell the salesman that you're going to pay cash. And they smile and are eager to take your money. And as you come up to the cashier to pay your money... You pull out your wallet and, you know, dish out your, your cash. And the, and the cashier realizes, hey, this, this, that your money has got a funny color. And he picks it up and realizes this is just, this is just monopoly money. You can't buy a lawnmower with monopoly money. And you say, but it's made of paper like the other stuff. And he says, yeah, but monopoly money. It has authority in Monopoly, but it has no authority in Home Depot. There's no, there is no currency backing up this paper. It has no authority. It's empty. Or consider another analogy. If your coworker tells you that they're impressed by your work, you think, oh, that's, that's nice. I'm encouraged by that. And they say, you know, you're you're such a good employee, I think you actually deserve a raise. Like, yeah, that's that's even more encouraging. But if the CEO 
comes by your cubicle, taps you on the soldier, so, sh- shoulder and says the very same thing. It carries a lot more weight. The CEO says, I think you deserve a raise. You're going to expect money coming to you in your next paycheck. Why? Because the CEO has the authority to give you that. See, Jesus is not just a messenger. Jesus is saying, I have absolute authority to forgive your sins. And not just one sin, but all sins. Every sinful thought, every action, every motive this man has ever had. He can forgive all of his iniquity, all of his transgression, all of his sin. Wipe it all out and say, it is gone. It is forgiven. He has the complete authority to wipe this man's life clean. And he proves it by this miracle. And he proves that he is God. I have the authority to forgive sins. Now, if you think about that long enough, it begs another question. And that question is, how can God, even God, how can God forgive sins? Because doesn't the Bible teach that God is absolutely just? Yeah. Well, how is it justice then if sins are forgiven? I mean, consider with me. If you were to find out that a well-known gangster had gone to trial, he had been convicted of multiple crimes, and then after the trial, the judge just simply forgives him, just simply forgives him for all of his murder, all of his assaults, all of his theft, all of his rapes, and says, you're forgiven. Go home. In your heart, you would know that is not right. That is a travesty. That's not justice. And you would be rightly outraged. Well, how can we call God just then if he can forgive men for the very same crimes? That's not justice. The very word forgiveness shouts injustice. There's no justice unless this man pays in full for all of his crimes. The opposite of justice has taken place in forgiveness. Right? So how can God forgive sins and still be just? Even Abraham asked in Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Psalm 7.11. God is a righteous judge. Also in Psalm 97. Justice of the foundation of his throne. So how can this be? How can God forgive people and still maintain his justice? Well, the question is actually the very question that the Apostle Paul answers in the book of Romans. 
The whole book of Romans is actually written in order to answer this very question. And so there's a lot to this question. So if you want the full answer, that's where you should go. But I'll give it to you in short. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. The short answer to the question, how can God forgive sins and still be judge, just, is if God himself personally pays for those sins. Because ultimately all of our sins are ultimately against him. He's the one that's ultimately offended. That's why David can say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, he had sinned against other people, namely Bathsheba and Uriah and others. But ultimately, all of our sins are ultimately against God. So if God himself pays for the sins, then he can be still just in forgiving him. And that's why Jesus had to come to earth. That's what we celebrate in the Advent season. If he didn't come, and if he didn't come and physically pay for the sins of believers on the cross, God would not be just. He could not say what he says to this paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus could not make that pronouncement if he isn't absolutely assured that he's going to the cross. So recognize that. His son takes, as, as, as Jesus takes that man's hand and said, son, your sins are forgiven. At the same time, he's thinking, they're going to be forgiven because I'm going to pay for them. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. And this is why we can have absolute assurance that our sins are forgiven. See, our, our sins aren't forgiven because of we've prayed enough. We've read the Bible enough. We've done enough good deeds. Our sins are forgiven because Christ was faithful. And he says, if you believe that I have been faithful and and completely accomplished all that the Messiah was called to accomplish in the Old Testament, if you believe that, if you believe in my name, you too can have forgiveness of all of your sins. Past, present, and future. All of them gone. Wiped out. This is the glorious truth of the Christian gospel. And that's why it's really effectively summarized in Acts 10.43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And that's really a great opportunity for us to then transition to the Lord's table. Because it's in the Lord's table that Christ gave us a reminder of what he would do. Consider in particular Matthew twenty six twenty eight, As he breaks the bread and then takes the cup, he says, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. That's how the forgiveness is accomplished. And so when we come together to celebrate the Lord's table, it's really to celebrate the forgiveness that we've received. It's to proclaim to ourselves with a physical reminder that Christ has completely paid for all of our sins. As, as, as William Cooper writes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains.